This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 28, A Spider in the Web. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make. Everybody, hold on to your seats. This is a Talia episode. <laughs> yeah. Steven, Steve, you could have knocked Steven over with a feather. He was he was shocked. Not only is it a Talia episode, it is a meaty Talia episode. She is all over the place in this one. Oh, hi. Uh, we're, we're Like we said, we're Chip, Shannon, and Erica. And this mm-hmm. is our recap of Babylon 5 in its entirety. And we're about a quarter of the way through the second season. Hi. If this is the first time you're listening to us, welcome. How did you find this? Why did you start now? <laughs> yeah. But uh, we're going to talk about a spider in the web, which is a big, um, a, a big telepath excuse story. Me, excuse yes. me. I just have to say something. As I was preparing my notes, I was I was asking myself, okay, is it a spider in the web? Is it spider in the web? And I, I couldn't remember. We we flipped on the DVD um, that said, you know, episode selection, a spider in the web. The episode starts. The letter A is nowhere to be found. The on-screen title is <laughs> Spider in the Web. So I would just like to point out that my notes reflect that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Your spirited defense... <laughs> of the indefinite article is noted. <laughs> it is Thank appreciated. You. However, everywhere else in the universe, um, <laughs> basically the omission of the letter A in the title on the screen It's a was, conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. <laughs> it's an error. Occam's razor, dude. Occam's razor. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would have to stretch pretty far to figure out what kind of conspiracy is getting rid of the vowel A. <laughs> it could have been worse. They could have left it the original title, A Trick of the Mind. <laughs> what a crappy title. This is, And this is an example of the creative process of Babylon 5 at work. See, we got a better title out of it. <laughs> or most of one. <laughs> I have nothing to say to you. I am going to talk about the recap so if this is your first episode of Babylon 5, this is what you need to know to make sense of it all. But you've already seen it, so you basically we're retrospectively explaining and putting it all into context because some of our listeners have very short-term memories and need to not only be reminded of what they saw, but what it meant. So this is what it means. This is your recap. When telepaths started emerging in human society, an organization called the Psychor was created to police them and protect the privacy of so-called normals. In the year 2259 on the space station Babylon 5, we've come to know that there are tensions between telepaths and normals, and that at least some high-ranking enforcers, the Psychops, are not on the side of the angels. But we've also gotten to know the station's resident commercial telepath, Talia Winters, who's loyal to both the Corps and her friends on the station. Babylon 5 is a neutral United Nations in space, but the humans who run it tend to get caught up in Earth Alliance politics, whether it's psi drama or sometimes bloody separatist tensions between Earth itself and its Mars colony. And that's what you need to know going into A Spider in the Web, a 
Spider in the Web, which brings <laughs> all these threads home to roost. A businessman meets a Mars Politico on Babylon 5 to strike a deal that he hopes will lead to peaceful independence for Mars. But he's promptly assassinated by a guy with an electric hand shouting, Free Mars! Talia witnesses the attack, but her telepathic scans reveal only brief flashes of him placing second in a run-in with a giant Earth Alliance warship. Turns out... Turns out... He's a former Free Mars radical, Abel Horn, thought to be dead, but an agency called Bureau 13 on Earth is coordinating with someone or something called Control on the station to have the man wreak havoc. During the investigation, B-5's Captain Sheridan reveals himself to be a conspiracy buff who's been investigating Bureau 13 on his own and suspects that the attacker was a victim of government experiments to implant cybernetics in the recently deceased. (laughs) Horn's contact with Talia puts his emerging personality at war with his programming, and he captures Talia, maneuvering Sheridan and the security team into putting him out of his misery. That ends Sheridan's hope of finding out more about Bureau 13. He'd be even more pissed if he knew Talia figured out that Psycor is part of the conspiracy, and she's not telling. And that was A Spider in the Web, written by Larry Dottilio, Babylon 5 script editor, and possibly, probably, the only guy almost as plugged into the story arc and the Babylon 5 universe as our showrunner JMS is at this point. So, what did you think about this story? Just generally how it was written, how it was directed? Was it any good? Let's start with Shannon. I think there's a lot of good stuff in the story. I wasn't always happy with how it was presented. Um, I was very much feeling the exposition dumpiness of the opening couple of scenes as Talia and her mentor get together and recap for the viewers what's going on and what the situation is. I also feel like it was a bit uneven. I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, there's been hints in season one and uh, about Mars, and uh, a faction in on Mars wanting independence for it. But it feels like the world building is kind of an awfully big thump of this big, huge trunk of information. If that makes any sense, I think that maybe a little bit more in previous episodes of, of hinting here and there, the way they've been able to skillfully weave in some other stuff might have made the transition a little bit easier for me. What about you, Erica? You know, I quite like this one overall. I wasn't quite as bothered as Shannon was by the exposition dumpy nature of that that first scene between um, Talia and I just... Isogi? It did. Isogi, thank you. Yeah, and I just, you know, I noticed it, but it didn't have the same heavy-handedness that we've gotten sometimes. And again, I think it's because we have a person from the station and a person who is not on the station. So, yes, I know, you know, news travels, probably they both knew a lot of the same things, but it, it made a little bit more sense to me than the the two people who know each other who are spending every day together talking about the same things that we've gotten sometimes. Actually, the scene that bothered me a little bit more was a later one with uh, Sheridan and Ivanova in Earhart's where she is asking him about this this other race, which maybe we can talk about them later. But that's yeah, that just seemed very awkwardly awkwardly phrased and staged to me, um, like very exposition dump heavy. The other thing that I have noticed, this is how many episodes has Larry Dottilio done by this point? Do you remember? 
Oh, you're going um, to have to. You're going to make me do math, it's, aren't it's you? It's just a. It's just a few, right? It's not like a huge amount. Um, but I, I seem. I remember in the past noticing in his episodes that he has a tendency to sprinkle in a lot of sort of futuristic jargon or technology, and like he does a lot of world building that I think yeah. he means to be subtle, and it doesn't always come off as subtle. I think he did a much better job in this one because you still get a few hints of that here and there. They mention a, a slaver's glove as something that could possibly possibly be the cause of the electric hand and the the death of this first person um, of Isogi. And it's just sort of like a slaver's glove. You know, it doesn't pack that kind of a punch. And it's it's just a throwaway thing. And it it was maybe it was the fact that the word slaver and the word glove are two normal words that sound like they could fit together in English of today. So it's not like he was making something up out of whole cloth. Um, and the other thing that I noticed was the drink, the Jovian sunspot, <laughs> which yes, which I noticed that too. And looked delicious. Yeah. I want one. I'm sure the internet has a, a zillion recipes, but I want to know which one is the canonical <laughs> recipe and make one of those. This is his uh, Datillo's fifth episode, by the way. Just pulled that up. Oh, fifth? Wow. Okay, that's that's even more than I thought. So maybe maybe the heavy handedness of of his um his his world building jargon isn't isn't in every episode. It just seems to be that every episode I notice it. Happens to be mm-hmm. a Larry Dottilio episode. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he he was story editor in season one and executive story editor for season two. Let's see. Let's just recap real quick. His previous episodes were Born to the Purple, Death Walker, TKO, and Eyes. And then uh, mixed this bag is, there. Yeah, d- totally a mixed bag. And then uh, Spider in the Web for uh, this one. Eyes was. All flashbacky and all recappy, and I, I think you're onto something here with the world building stuff. He is, as I, as I said early on, it's he's the he is at this point probably JMS's closest confidant, other than maybe Harlan Ellison, and he knows this universe. And between him and JMS, you know, doing script passes, I'm sure. Um, the temptation to really trowel all this stuff in must be huge. Yeah, but overall, I thought it was it was fairly elegantly done. I thought it was interesting that we did not have a B-plot once again. It seemed like all of season one, we had the very sort of stereotypical television, not procedural exactly, but just the way that you usually get, you know, your A-plot, your B-plot. And quite often at the end, they weave together and it's it's all cute and happy. Um, and for these last couple episodes, A Long Dark and This... We really only have one story that's capturing our attention throughout this, and there's nothing that I would even remotely call a B plot. I mean, that other alien race that that you know we we get glimpses that Ivanova is very capable in her new position, and that's that's about it. The rest of it focuses on this, and I appreciate that because I think it feels less formulaic when they do it that way, and it it gives it a little more room to to sort of breathe and fill in the uh, fill in the space that it has. It's nice. Not only no B plot, but no aliens. This is entirely oh, about Earth Alliance. You're right. That's true. I, it was so skillfully done, I didn't even notice that. It was just like, this is what's happening in front of me on the screen. Does Babylon 5 need the aliens? Or to this point, are the episodes just as interesting when they focus on Earth politics and um, you know Earth Alliance drama as they do when Londo and Jakar and Delin are on the scene? I think that's 
part of the beauty of the show is that it plays with all of it kind of mm-hmm. equally. Some episodes were focused on uh, alien politics and alien issues with their cultures. And then we get an episode like this, which is about Earth and uh, and connections to Earth. And sometimes we get an episode like The Long Dark, which is more about uh, what's happening on the station itself. So uh, I, I like that we get lots of different possibilities compared to um, other shows that focus just on what's happening on X ship when it visits Y planet, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that while maybe right now I am finding some of the Earth Alliance political machinations plots to be a little bit more interesting than some of the alien stuff that we've seen so far, I think that if every single episode up until now, like we've had quite a few episodes, if they had all been focused on just humans and what's going on on Earth and on the station, I think they, first of all, probably would have had to move the overall plot arc forward a lot faster, or we would have gotten really, really bored with just this sort of more day-to-day minutia of what's going on with the humans. I think the fact that humanity has run into all of these other races in the stars is what makes Babylon 5 such an interesting place. And without that backdrop, um, you would lose a lot of the interest and excitement of the show. And if you've got that backdrop and you're not mining it for interesting interesting plots and, and characters, then it seems like just a waste. So I'm right now I'm still a little bit, I think, more excited about this Earth Alliance stuff just because it seems like there's a lot to dig into. But I'm, I'm going to wait and see, and, and maybe we'll get some exciting stuff to dig into with the aliens soon. I wouldn't want them to go away, that's for sure. Right. Now, um, one last bit about the Earth Alliance politics. Uh, we've had in the previous season in the Voice in the Wilderness two-parter, we had uh, the sort of the background of the Mars riots. But this, I think, really is the first time that they've really dug deep into the conflict between Mars and Earth and Mars's explicit desire for independence. Shannon, you sort of you said earlier that you you thought that, that sort of came out of nowhere almost. Um, is it does it make for good drama in this episode? I mean, it certainly has the potential to do so. Like I said, it just felt a bit abrupt. Like you said, it, it's been how many episodes since um, the Mars riots thing was mentioned, and all of a sudden we get. It feels like we get almost all the information at once. Like we've gotten hints that there's trouble, and now here is chapter and verse um, most of what's going on. Uh, so it just it, it didn't feel like as smooth a transition as some of the other plot threads that we've seen developing. Yeah, I guess I can I can give you that, but I I just maybe it's because I'm comparing Babylon Five to other TV shows. Sort of in my mind, I, I at least they gave us some hint of it beforehand because you know sometimes on yeah. television, even now, suddenly it's like oh you know two characters talking to each other about all of this stuff that's been happening that the viewer has no way of knowing because we just invented it. Um, so at least at least there's mm-hmm. that. True. Okay. That okay. Is true. Let's uh, move on to the important stuff. Let's move on to Andrea Thompson and Talia Winters and possibly the meatiest role that she's had since Mind War, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. And I appreciate that she got at least some some good guest starring actors in some cases to uh, to bounce off with given this story. I really liked seeing Adrian Barbeau in a role where she gets to play a smart woman wearing all of her clothes. That wasn't always the case in her career. You're so, here. Uh, I really liked that. And um, her mentor, uh, Taro Isogi, that was nicely done too. Oh, I thought it was. I thought that he was. 
I thought that he was well played mm-hmm. and I really liked the dynamic between them. Yes, it was. It felt very warm and natural. And I mean, Talia is not the most warm and natural feeling character overall. So it, I think it really packed an extra little punch to have her sort of feel so fuzzy wuzzy towards this guy who is very clearly, you know, a crusader for peace and just seemed like just a, a real stand up fellow. And then having him get murdered so soon was very, you know, it, it hit me. I was I think that it, it really worked in the confines of the story because they had set him up so nicely. And then it turns into a fairly emotive performance for Andrea Thompson, and Talia really does open up to everybody in this episode, it seems like. Uh, She is warm and fuzzy toward Asogi, and then she is wounded for most of the rest of the episode. You know, um, she and Sheridan have an argument where uh, Sheridan almost accuses her of being in on this, and uh, then... They both say mean things to each other, and they both apologize to each other. The first genuinely warm scene between Garibaldi and Talia, they're just sitting and having tea and having conversations about their families, you know. It's really nice. It's a really good opportunity for Thompson to actually do something on the show, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally, I totally agree, and I think it helped that they set it up with um, – the obvious caring relationship between her and Asogi to smooth the path more, especially but especially with her and Garibaldi. I mean, yeah, they had the uh, initial scene in the elevator where he, you know, cracks the joke, gets her to laugh for a second, uh, breaks the ice a little bit more. And without those things, it would have been very hard to buy their conversation in her quarters later on, given how generally antagonistic she's been towards towards him flirting with her. So Dottillo did a good job within the episode of preparing the way for that. Yeah, her reaction um, in CNC when she finds out or, or that uh, the Garibaldi is going to be the one that's escorting her. It's just it, it, that is a great moment because she's like, oh, great. You know, I just I don't need this. And Stephen's sitting next to me just going, not the time, Garibaldi. <laughs> and then Garibaldi <laughs> does it anyway. And, you know, oh, it's going to be bad. <laughs> And, and then Stephen just goes, insensitive. <laughs> it's just like, yep, <laughs> totally. But then, you know, I appreciate it. I think it was very skillfully done from a script and acting perspective, how he then sort of brings it around. He apologizes genuinely and then cracks the joke to make her laugh. And that that is like the the, the crack in the, the ice or, or whatever it is that, that sort of breaks it up so that later she is willing to sit down and, and offer him a cup of tea and he makes her laugh and tells her about his pop and... And I think that's exactly what she needed right then. So I, I appreciate that. And by the end of the episode, Stephen was like, ooh. And I was like, are you shipping Garibaldi and Talia? He's like, that's exactly what I was just thinking. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Mm. Uh, but but the other thing that I, I really liked was her performance in the scene with Sheridan. When Sheridan really just sort of, you know, he's trying to cast the blame on her and Taro. And she is just having none of that. I think that was a really good um a, a good performance on her part and also on his part too because I think Bruce Boxleitner's response after she basically yells at him um, is very it's it's kind of subtle but he's definitely cowed he feels he's like okay I, mm-hmm. I have gone a step too far and I think he he played that very nicely yeah now speaking of wonderful making perfect sense character development and interaction. Let's talk about that scene in Earhart's between uh, Sheridan and Ivanova talking about random aliens for no purpose whatsoever for like three or four hours. Sorry. I have a theory. I I have a theory. 
I, I think this is Detello trying to help us make Sheridan a more complex person. So far, this series, Sheridan, his, his general persona has been this charming, nice, somewhat happy-go-lucky fellow. Yes, he's clever. Yes, he knows what he's doing and he handles his job. But the char- But still, overall, the character has not had a whole lot of depth to him. So between that scene where um, he is telling Ivanova, basically showing, see, I, I do know how to handle aliens. I can handle alien contact. We haven't gotten much of a hint of his interaction with aliens other than the Earth-Mimbari War. So this is to show that, yes, he can be a peacemaker and, and that type. And then later on, there's the bit where he tells Garibaldi he, he's a conspiracy collector. If I had been coming into this you know, brand new uh, thinking about what this character is like, that did not seem to me like anything that the Sheridan I've seen so far would be interested in. That felt really, really badly stuffed in to try and either make the episode work or to lay groundwork for some stuff down the line. I don't know. But those two scenes really felt like we've got to beef up Sheridan's character. And they both felt really awkward to me. I have a theory about that scene with Sheridan and Ivanova. I believe the script was running short. Aha. Uh-huh. Very possible. That's it. That's right. all I have right. because I see what I see what you're trying there, Shannon, but I I'm not mm-hmm. it was pointless. It was pointless. It was dare I say it again, pointless. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think that I don't think that there was much they could have done to make it not pointless, uh, but I do think that it would have worked better for me if there had been a third person in that scene. Because, like I said, you get the clunky dialogue with you know Ivanova having to say, well, weren't you the first person to make contact with them? And so clearly she knows that he was, and yet then he has to go on and, and tell her about that. If there had been one other person sitting at that table... To say, well, you know, you know all about this because you made first contact with him. And he could kind of be like, oh, that's true. And Ivanova or the other person could be like, oh, you don't say. And then he has somebody who literally has no idea that he's able to explain it to. Um, it mm-hmm. still wouldn't have I, – I still don't think that it would have necessarily fit into this story all that well. But it would have flowed a little more smoothly and felt a little bit better about, you know, beefing up his character without him having to regale somebody else with a tale that they already kind of know. Yeah, and Dottilio can do Sheridan and Ivanova very, very well in this very episode, mm-hmm. the scene in CNC where he's asking Ivanova what he what she thinks of Talia. And Ivanova reminds him that she, he doesn't she, that she doesn't like telepaths and she doesn't like Psychor and uh <laughs> Sheridan's like, Yeah, I remember you threw the one off of, out the third floor window. <laughs> there was an ample swimming pool underneath. That is gold. That is that is really, really funny, really, really concentrated. It's not out of place like the salad and the, the like the salad gags when um Franklin's mm-hmm. making them um change their diets and stuff like that. This is it, it's it's really, really uh, it, it's a great little scene that reveals far more of Sheridan and Ivanova's character than this stupid scene about the Takar aliens. 
Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I love their back and forth. Just the way that the conversation flows between the two of them when it's working well is great. You know, because Ivanova's reaction at first to just, you know, tilt her head and be like, well, Talia is an, an interesting person. And immediately you get Sheridan going, you never describe anybody that way. So it was just like they clearly know each other. They know the way each other thinks. So it was it was that was a great scene. Yeah, I wish we could have had another one more like that. Last thing that I want to get before we go into jump space, uh, government conspiracies and secret experiments, you know, the um, we've all the way back to infection when the Earth Force security guy came up and said, I'm going to I'm going to be taking those research, those artifacts in your research, uh, Dr. Franklin, for further experimentation, you know, um, and the conspiracy against uh, President Santiago. It's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? And now we've even got something or someone compromising the entire station. So Babylon 5 seems to be really about not just fights between governments, but it, it's really turning into an episode about fights within our own government. Yeah, and I think it's fair. We've, we've had, you know, glimpses of uh, issues in, within the Centauri uh, culture, within the Membari culture. So it makes sense to show that, you know, guess what? The humans aren't above this sort of thing. We're not unified either. So they really bring that more into the open uh, with this plot. And, and, you know, as much of a left turn as it might seem like to suddenly discover that Sheridan is a collector of conspiracies, I didn't feel like that was too out of place with the Sheridan that we've we've already seen. Because to me, he just he still seems like this, you know, wide eyed, excited puppy. And like he just he strikes me as the kind of person who would get really excited about conspiracy theories within the government or, you know, it. If, if it wasn't in, in this, you know, futuristic year, you know, maybe alien invasion and stuff like that, he would be somebody who is looking into that kind of thing. So I think the the fact that he gets so excited about things plays into that. All right. So so him and, you know, we he's a capable, smart guy or he wouldn't be in the position that he's in. So it makes sense that he would also be able to track down some information and come up with this name of Bureau 13. And I think that he is he's convinced enough that it exists but he's not willing to completely go out and you know he's he's not a truther exactly uh, which is what Stephen was like oh god he's a truther but i, I like the fact <laughs> i like the fact that he um you know even when it's coming to other things in in the story he is He's not entirely sure that he believes it himself. So, like, you know, he's willing to entertain these crazy ideas. But, you know, that's when when Garibaldi is talking to him about the, you know, the the zombie electricity cyber guys or whatever. Um, and Garibaldi's like, whoa, you almost had me there. And Sheridan says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure about it. But he's definitely the kind of guy who is is willing to put his mind around it and act as if those kinds of things are true. Which, when you're on a space station surrounded by lots of, of alien races, you know, that that's probably not a bad kind of frame of mind to have because what you know from Earth is not necessarily going to be true in the rest of the galaxy. So I, I like that little bit of characterization for him. Oh, I forgot to mention one last thing before we go into the jump gate. Yes, that was Jeff Conway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, with special appearance by or some, I can't remember exactly what the credit was. It, you know, they say blah blah, blah Jeff Conaway, and I'm like, woo, Kaniki, and then he's, <laughs> he's in it for like a like half a scene. It was a little yeah. bit of a, huh. yeah, yeah. But you know, bless his heart, he did better than um, a couple of the folks that wrapped up in the A plot. I, there were times when Michael Beck's performance worked, and there were a lot of times that it didn't. 
I, I really wish he could have been stronger. I felt like Adrian Barbeau's performance was so much stronger compared compared to him. And of course, Andrea Thompson's, you know, being so much stronger that, you know, it really it it really showed him possibly, you know, worse than he was. But there there were times when, when I just was shaking my head. It's a tough role because you're it is. you're you're and, and I keep I keep going back to infection because that's our other sort of cyborg episode of the series so far. Uh, but the guy is supposed to have deep buried down his uh, original personality of being sort of a radical kind of bloodthirsty uh, terrorist. And we see that a little bit when he, you know, when he thanks the earth or, you know, with a with a fair bit of scorn. And the rest of the time he's supposed he, he's basically trying to pull off the Terminator. And he's not exactly. he, he's not Arnold. He's really not. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was that was yeah, not, the, a, not a great performance. Yeah. And the the senator also it, it bothered me a bit because I immediately recognized the face of the actress, uh, Jessica Walter, who's had a very long career doing all kinds of uh, television. But um, it took me several minutes to place that I'd seen her of all places on one episode of The Big Bang Theory. Um, and then after that, her. This, this character, she wasn't selling it as well for me, having made that connection when she very deliberately pointed to her eye and her ear when telling Sheridan that he had to keep his eyes and ears open. I'm just like, that wasn't necessary. That really wasn't necessary. So there were bits of performances that were throwing me out of the story this time around. Yeah. And before we jump to spoiler space, I just want to quickly mention the direction. This is, I think, yet another new director. So Stephen liked this episode, but he thought there were some weird directorial bits, uh, weird like dissolves between scenes that felt dated. Although, you know, this was the 1990s, so maybe it wasn't quite so dated at the time. Um, But very weird sort of staging with the close ups. You know, you'd see two characters in a long shot. And then when they were in close-ups. It just didn't look like they were staged in sort of the same place, which was weird for him. The only the thing, and I don't know if this is a script thing or a director thing that I was confused about was this whole Bureau Thirteen um, thing, and then Control. At, at for the beginning of the episode, I was just thinking that that lady was Control or at the Bureau Thirteen, right. and then and then we get right. this voice reporting to her from the station when I'm pretty sure Abel was not in a position to be talking so like there's somebody else involved or something i i got a little bit confused by that it didn't it didn't hang together as nicely as i wish it would have because now i'm not entirely sure of of exactly who is who is where and what do we have a mysterious third player here or or is that somebody else that's not on the station i don't know and i think that may be deliberate on the part of the script and planning for future events um but I agree, it, it's a it's a bit of a model because, you, of course, you've got Psychor, uh, like you said, you've got this control thing, and you've got all of a sudden now Bureau Thirteen, which yeah, I wish they could a better name that, all kind of mixed together, and you're getting really conflicting representations now of Psychor because for up till now Psychor has appeared to be this organization that was started with the best of intentions, but is now way too heavy-handed. I mean, our major PSYCOR experiences are with Bester and his ilk um, causing trouble, and apparently there are hints of uh, trouble with the president's assassination, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, in this episode, we get Talia you know, talking about, you know, just how well cared for she was, about her first mentor in PSYCOR and how safe she felt, and, you know, presenting the idea that she's still 
as Talia says, completely loyal to Psycor. And yet at the end of this episode, we see that Talia is actually at least, she doesn't trust so much that she doesn't investigate, that she starts looking for this person she saw in Abel Horn's mind to try and uh, track she, down what's going on here. But then she doesn't mention it to Captain Sheridan. You know, he asked, did you recognize exactly. the uniform? And she says no. So she's still pretty loyal to Psychor, which I think is interesting. I like I liked exactly. Talia in this in this episode because she really was meaty and she got to do and think and feel an awful lot. So yay show. Yay show. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 it could have been a stronger episode in a lot of respects, but it's a really good Talia episode and we've been overdue for that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into the jump gate and talk about implications of this episode on the entire rest of the series. So if you don't want to be spoiled, please go away and come back to this podcast after you have watched all five years of Babylon 5. Uh, and you are welcome. You are welcome to join us when you've done that. Next time, we will be handing the baton over to Erica Ensign and we will be deviating Alert, alert, we're following Mm -hmm. the uh, master episode list at the Lurker's Guide, and we will be deviating, and we're basically swapping on the DVD order, um, A Race Through Dark Places and Soulmates. So next time, the episode is A Race Through Dark Places. The reason we're swapping that is that race was intended to go first, but it took them longer to get the um, effects and production work done, so they... They just swapped him in the running time, but it actually makes sense, uh, more sense, story sense for us to be following the Lurker's Guide master lists. So, A Race Through Dark Places. And I will spoil this, it's another Talia episode. <gasps> Steven's going to fall out of his chair. <laughs> I, I, and yeah, Steven, that's my little gift to you. But that is in two weeks from now. Obviously, we'd love to hear your comments about uh, this episode, not just the Babylon 5 episode, but the podcast itself. We're at b5audioguide.com. We're on Tumblr and Twitter at b5audioguide. And let's open a jump gate and let's go through it. And we're back. And man, was that such a casual introduction to Zach Allen. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ste- Stephen was like. I squeed when I heard him. <laughs> and Stephen thought it was really funny because of the way that he introduced himself over the comic. So the first thing is we hear his voice. And Stephen would pointed out that in every other episode, when there's a security person talking to Garibaldi, they're just, you know, they say, you know, hey, chief blah 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 blah. here's the deal but in this case he was like hey chief zach allen here <laughs> like it was just <laughs> it was very much spotlighting that he is an extra important person but then he doesn't do anything but then he doesn't do anything so here's a little bit of the backstory yeah. on um jeff conway's appearance on babylon 5 conway is no longer with us he had had substance abuse issues he'd had he he was knicky in greece and then Things didn't go so well for him. And he was actually trying to rebuild his career. And he was actually starting from scratch. And he showed up in a day call or whatever you call it for extras for small roles in in episodes, just like any other security guard character. 
And I, I don't recall if it was the uh, casting director or JMS himself. It was like, wait, that's Jeff Conaway? Whoa. So Conaway was just sort of humbly just starting over. And that's why this episode, his appearance in this episode is so casual and so throwaway. He worked his way into the cast. He becomes a really important part of the show, but at this point, he's just, he's, at this point, he's literally just this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and that just amazes me, that he just sort of just a, 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 a casually appears in this episode, and it's him, and he's carrying himself well. He's certainly carrying himself better than the, um, I think, lurkers, I think we should just space them guy from uh, Long Dark Life. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that, that was... Who yeah. I believe yeah, that was nice to see him go by. <laughs> yeah, who? Yeah, I, I believe that was him who got electrocuted by uh, by Abel Horn this time <gasps> around. So, yeah, oh, yes, yay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Jeff Conaway, Zach Allen. I, so much I'm yay. so happy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. so happy to see the the beginning of him. Like I was, I was trying to keep it under wraps because I didn't want Steven to know like how much squee was going on there um, because I (laughs) know who he becomes as a character and I just think he's adorable and I love him Um, but Steven doesn't know that yet so plenty cool yes I I am I'm going to be so punching the air next year when we get to the those some of those episodes that he plays such a big role in (laughs) I was actually kind of surprised I thought that he was just a one-for-one exchange with Lou Welch but Lou Welch will show up uh later on in this season in Gropos Mm -hmm. so so no it's not just a uh, I I'm sure I'm sure Conway got some of uh the actor who played Lou Welch's got some of his parts uh, later on as that mm-hmm. actor decided to move on and do some different things. But yeah, it's, it's not just a, there, there's some overlap here, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Control. Talia's mm-hmm. personality. This actually revealed far more about Talia's ultimate fate than I was kind of expecting. Um, <laughs> it actually revealed more about it than I remembered. <laughs> to be perfectly yeah, honest. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Until I until I talked to you guys and sort of was reading through the uh, the, the notes for for recording, I had forgotten that the control thing had anything to do with with Talia on her side of it. And so, you know, nicely done show for slipping that in there in such a way that's so subtle that even knowing what her eventual fate is, that I forgot that this was tied to it. Yeah, it all sort of it, it all sort of builds early on. First episode, Talia says, "I don't feel like a victim." Uh, we have uh, the the experience with Abbott the Vicar, you know, reflection, terror, surprise for the future. This time around, uh, when she and Garibaldi are talking about their childhoods, and she's talking about Abby and her and how it sounds so reasonable, so reasonable, oh, so and reasonable. so comforting, and how she made her feel better, and that she there's this this quiet place in her mind that. That was actually kind of darn creepy knowing what we're knowing what's going to happen to her and what's been done to her. And as Lita Alexander uh, explains in Divided Loyalties uh, towards the end of the season, control is, in fact, Talia, Talia's uh, submerged, uh, implanted personality. So it's interesting that control reports that Talia, the dominant personality, it turns out, is a threat to Bureau 13's plans. And then somebody, JMS Online, clarifies that the order came, didn't come directly from control. I figured the, um, the, the the computer image thing is not 
Talia herself, but some sort of computer AI in the system that facilitates communication or something like that. But Control didn't order Talia's own death. Uh, Control reported that Talia was a threat and Bureau 13 uh, figured that she was expendable. At least that's the way that I put it all together. What about you all? Yeah, that's that is what it looked like to me, you know, that we have this this mysterious control uh, person or entity reporting on things and that it was the Bureau 13 lady who is actually making the decisions and and making the calls. Shannon, what did you think about the control conspiracy um, in light of where it winds up? Well, you know, it made me sad because uh, (laughs) I I like Talia as a character and I like some of the things we're going to be seeing develop between, you know, not her and Garibaldi, her and Ivanova, which I want to come back to in a second, <laughs> and all that sort of thing, you know, and this is the beginning, you know, that it went back this far and even farther back that she was always a doomed character, that that this was going to come out in some way. Um, so so it generally just sort of made me sad, and in a couple of cases made me cringe, um, seeing uh, Abel Horn's full flashback and the... Um, Psychop, you know, leaning over and, you know, hours now. It's just like, really? You couldn't think of anything better to say? But, um, <laughs> yeah, that, but that yeah. was a little iffy. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 overall, it just, yeah, it, you know, a little bit sad that, you know, even though what we get with Lita Alexander and Patricia Tallman is awesome sauce all over the place later on, I kind of want my cake and eat it too. I, I would have loved to have seen Talia continue as a character for longer than she did or Um, even you know come back later and have it revealed that her mm -hmm. personality was stored by abbott or she got away or something right just that's that's one of the things that's left hanging at the end of babylon 5 that still breaks my heart well not totally left hanging uh bester teases uh, garibaldi and says that talia was dissected true which you know maybe that's true maybe it's not i I really hope not. Yeah, you can't trust Bester. <laughs> but at the but at the time, Andrea Thompson had uh, bigger and better things to do because she was on NYPD Blue, and yeah, well, that's that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Can't blame her. I know. But yeah, yeah it, it also, uh, I love Devonova's scene where Sheridan asks about her because um, what it shows those just a couple lines of dialogue, and what it winds up showing is that Ivanova feels very certain about. Talia's position that Talia can be trusted to, you know, do right by the station, even though she is loyal to Psycor. But on the other hand, Ivanova is showing she has no idea how she feels about Talia. She she just she can't articulate it. She can't articulate, you know, what she might be feeling towards Talia. Um, and that just was done so elegantly, you know, packed in, you know, all of these ideas and all of these possibilities packed in just a couple lines. Yeah, yeah, I think that it, it was a wonderful sort of, <laughs> I want to say in-depthening, but I'm pretty sure that's not a word, um, a way of uh, deepening Ivanova's <laughs> character um, because because she is very clearly, she has these strong, strong feelings about telepaths and we've seen her sort of warming up to Talia a little bit, you know, episode by episode. And here we, we get full-on evidence of that. Talia's not even in the room. She's just being asked about. And she gets a little bit squirrely in her reaction to to it. So it's it's nice to see that she is that she's so torn about this character. It's it's cool. Yeah. Mars. When Severed Dreams comes around in just over a year, the bombing of Mars is the thing that splinters the Earth Alliance and ultimately causes uh, Babylon 5 to secede 
So in that light is the amount of uh, info dump that we got about the situation on Mars and the sort of foregrounding of uh, the tensions between Mars and Earth. Was In that light, was this well-timed? Well, certainly it was going to be needed at some point, and I guess this was as good a time as any. Um, if I remember, we get some underlying bits and pieces here and there um, to sort of keep that thread going until we need it again. So, I mean, in general, that... I, uh, yeah, that works for me, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of um, retroactive icing on the cake, so to speak. I don't know that we necessarily needed this. I think I like that they have been seeding the Mars plot sort of all the way along. But when it really comes down to it, like in, in Separate Dreams, I, it's such a big, bad, awful thing for Earth to do that I think it would work even if they hadn't built up to it so much like they do here. Um, but the fact that they do build up to it makes it even more powerful and effective. So I think it's not necessary, but I think it does work. And I think it's really interesting how um, throughout throughout the whole series and even into Crusade, the relationship between Mars and Earth is is always is always there. It's something that JMS never let go of. And it adds a good little bit of color to the um, to the Babylon Five universe, um, even even all the way up in Crusade when um, Mars is independent and they're having a conference to deal with the Drac plague. There are some cutting remarks between um, a Mars representative and an Earth Force person. It's verisimilitude. I mean, it it just feels real, almost unnecessary, but it does help. It does help make the Babylon 5 universe feel realer to me. Uh, it's an interesting balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing, um, I never for a moment bought the I'm a collector of, I I collect conspiracies thing <laughs> from Sheridan. Never for a moment bought it. It just, when I, when I watched this for the first time way back in the day, it was like, yeah, like we were talking about before the jump gate. I don't buy it. It's 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 weird. We're trying to make him. We're we're trying to make him deep, man. We're trying to make him deep. Right, right. That's how it struck me this time. Uh-oh. But knowing what we know about why he's on Babylon Five, why he got put there, what he's really up to, it just comes it comes off as a clumsy lie and one that <laughs> Garibaldi's just not buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And and I can see that. there was. Yeah, a couple of things I think that lends let lend themselves to to Sheridan's situation. Uh, that being one of them, that him trying to come up with, you know, a way to share something with Garibaldi without giving himself away. That for the longest time he he's holding back. He's not sharing with Garibaldi yet. Um, whether you know because he fears Garibaldi's divided loyalties, or uh, or he just doesn't sure that he's chasing the right thing or not. Um, and then what something that leaped out at me was. I think, it, and I think this is Sheridan's line. Something about uh, stating very stoutly, uh, I think maybe to Carter uh, that we don't spy on civilians. And my first reaction in my notes was, "But yeah, you spy on your co- on your coworkers." Um, <laughs> well, they're not civilians. so you know, <laughs> yeah, but not civilians. Yes, apparently, yeah, apparently there's a difference. But well, that really jumped out at me. Yeah, although um, he's he's spying on his coworkers because. I know. Evil forces, evil forces are spying on civilians. You know, it's it's sort of. Yes, uh, I know. It yeah. just, yeah, it still jumped out at me, uh, and and the Bureau Thirteen thing. Um, I just went looking, and it turns out they did. We never hear Bureau Thirteen mentioned again. Um, I wondered about and, that, and that is because um, there was a role playing game 
that was that featured a top secret government agency called Bureau 13 that uh, Dottillo did not know about when he was writing. And then once Draczynski was made aware of this game, he decided, okay, well, we'll just, you know, pretend the name never happened or it got changed to another name to make sure it stayed hidden. Um, so, yeah, we, we never hear the actual Bureau 13 again, even though the organization itself, of course, goes on to cause all kinds of havoc. What Do you happen to know what role-playing game it was? I think it was actually uh, entitled Bureau 13. Bureau 13, Stalking the okay. Night, Fantastic. Yes. Hmm. Okay. So. <laughs> well, yeah. well. Yeah, because I, I heard that name and it kind of caught me by surprise because I didn't remember it. And that would be why, because it does, it's, it's not repeated enough to get stuck in my memory. I just remembered the organization, mm-hmm. not the title. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And that was A Spider in the Web. A Spider. In the web. A. <laughs> spider. A. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> so next time, a race through dark places, Bester versus Talia, and then and Talia's got a big uh, part of Soulmates, uh, I, I believe. And then, I can't wait, after Soulmates, <laughs> The Coming of Shadows. And that's a big one. This is one of those gateway episodes, even though there's so much um, behind it. The Coming of Shadows is so good. If you have a friend who doesn't know Babylon 5 and you're obviously you you love the show. Otherwise, you wouldn't be waiting through the spoiler section with us. Invite your friend to watch The Coming of Shadows with you. See what see if their minds are blown. (laughs) But that's three episodes from now. Until next time, and a race through dark places, this is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. And for some odd reason, I felt compelled to say Chip in Edmonton. What's up with that? I do not know. I don't either. I didn't even, like, it didn't even, like, click.